0: watch a masterful stand-up comic they seem just naturally hilarious don't kid yourself
1: this is hard work a craft like making anything else of value craftsmanship quarterly presents the arts of the joke by david munro It took six years for Caribbean American comedian Michelle Bouteau to make audiences laugh at her Dutch husband's racist Christmas tradition. That may sound like a long time to a non comic, but to people who make jokes their trade and preoccupation, it's no shock at all. The Daily Show's Hassan Minaj labored for weeks to coax humor from his paranoia of being racially profiled on airplanes. Jimmy Fallon favorite Nate Bargatze spent months wondering why a joke wasn't landing until he realized he was letting truth get in the way of a good story. For New York headliner Giannis Pappas, adding one letter to one word was the difference between a maudlin breakup bit and a routine that ultimately anchored his first Comedy Central special. We all have our ways of processing grief, quips the Brooklyn-born Pappas. That may sound like a wisecrack from a wise guy, and it is, but it's also a pretty solid description of the art and the alchemy of stand-up comedy. Turning messy reality into fine-tuned hilarity is every bit a craft, and while the good ones make it look artless, don't be fooled. Comics are craftspeople before they are anything else. Tragedy plus time. Stand up is specifically one of those things where you're like instantly humbled by the craft itself, says Minaj, a self described word nerd. No matter how big you get, you're not bigger than the jokes or the craft. The truth of that statement blindsided Butoh, a comedy veteran when she first tried to build a joke around her husband's unsettling holiday ritual. When I spent my first Christmas in Holland, I didn't realize they have a Christmas character called Zwarte Piet, which is basically Black Pete. It was in blackface, she recalls. It was a struggle being in a group of people who were going to be my family who aren't racist, but who are defending this character who is basically Santa's slave. Like many comics, Butoh wanted to use the pleasures of comedy to gull us into taking a fresh look at naughty problems, like racial prejudice. Unfortunately, I ended up sounding like Reverend L. Sharpton on Sunday, she says. I had to sit with it a bit. Eventually, the normally hyper-irreverent Butoh, she calls her European husband, Vintage White, realized that if she was going to get preachy about something and make it funny it had to cut even closer to home
0: so santa claus whatever his name is he's like from spain he was a pope he came over he's dead santa claus right he had a little like homeboy with him who was like real tiny and real dark and i asked my man i was like who's that and he's like oh that's Swart Pete. it translates to black peter i was like uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how'd he get so dark? And he's like, oh, well, he had to jump down the chimney for Santa Claus, it's so funny, because Santa's so fat. So he had to jump, and that's how he got so dirty and dark. I was like, why is he have afro and look like Wesley well, Snipes? <laughs>
1: there is a sacrificial aspect to a comic's job. They take life's arrows so the rest of us can rubberneck from a safe distance. If we can laugh at someone wearing an arrow through the head, Maybe it won't hurt as much when it pierces us, too. Practically speaking, this means it's okay to talk about personal problems on stage as long as you've gotten over them off stage. Once Butoh got to this point with her in-law's holiday tradition, she went back to basics and just told the story. The joke came to life. Now that she could laugh at what had happened, her audience could, too. Premises and tags. Jokes come from three places, explains Pappas, his Brooklyn accent lending street-smart authenticity to his thoughts. An opinion about something, an observation of something, or an unreconciled pain from something. That something is known in the stand-up comedy trade as a premise. A guy who doesn't get any respect, like Raji Dangerfield, Words you can't say on television, George Carlin. Or the difference between black people and purpose, Chris Rock. Premises are not jokes. By themselves, they're not even funny. But funny lurks inside them. The premise is the stone, says Minaj. You start chipping away, shaping thoughts, removing words, choosing better words. You see the joke in the stone and it is your job as a comic to reveal it. Minaj is an Indian American Muslim and he minds much of his comedy from being a child of immigrants raised on American pop culture. Making humorous parallels between such racially divergent worlds can take some sculpting. I have this joke about being afraid to speak to my mom in Urdu on a plane. Everybody's looking at me and I'm panicking and I'm feeling persecuted because, you know, they think I'm Arabic. They think I'm a terrorist. And then this white guy with a Samsung Galaxy Note 7 gets on the plane. Quick reminder, these are the phones that explode. So, of course, I flip out on him. With the setup and the punchline roughed in, Minaj could begin to work the finer points, adding tags. Tags are additional punchlines that keep a joke going. With a strong enough premise, tags can keep a joke going For a long while. I said, hey, dude, get off the plane. And he goes, whoa, whoa. Just because a few Samsungs blow up doesn't mean all of them blow up. And I'm like, look, I'm not saying every Samsung blows up. I'm just saying every time a cell phone blows up, it just happens to be a Samsung. It was really fun to craft this joke, he says. Just weeks and weeks of adding tags, Minaj recalls. I had this perfect back-and-forth going. What are all the things that happened to me as a brown dude on an airplane, and how can I flip that with an analogy so everyone can understand the feeling of being guilty just by suspicion? Minaj's brilliance in both his stand-up and his work as a Daily Show correspondent is that he can faithfully play both sides, Whether you're a first-generation person of color or a white millennial with a tech fetish, he's got you either way. Too much information. Woodshedding is a term used to describe the lonely work of learning a craft, putting in the hours, acquiring the tools, and eventually attaining mastery. The basic idea is that out in the woods, no one can hear you suck. Comedians don't have woodsheds, or rather... Their woodsheds seat 100 people, and they have a two-drink minimum. There's no other profession where you learn your craft by failing in public, Pappas says. No rehearsal, no training. It's just go out there and do it. You know immediately if you're doing it wrong, because there's a bunch of people telling you so right in your face in real time. Like Pappas and Butoh, Nate Bargatze did his stand-up apprenticeship in New York. Unlike them, he did not take a subway from Jersey or the boroughs to get there. He is from Old Hickory, Tennessee. I always say starting in New York City is like dog years to everywhere else, Bargazzi says. I went on stage like every night for eight years. It would take 16 years to get that much stage time anywhere else. In the jokes for beers phase of a young comic's career when it's all about finding your voice, Bargazzi's persona that of a simple guy trapped in a needlessly complicated world. I'm not going to learn another language. I barely knocked this one out, he says. Well, that more or less came to him naturally. It was how he really felt as a newcomer to the big city. Fragazzi credits his southern accent for helping him slow down his delivery, but it still took the requisite 10,000 hours to dial in his true comic self. It's the old saying of, do you say things funny or do you say funny things, Bargatze says. I think in the beginning you're trying to say funny things, but then you change to where you are or what is funny, your character per se. When you get that, you have arrived, because basically anything you say will be funny. Like his old idol Jerry Seinfeld, Bargatze considers himself a storyteller, who works in joke form. Since he's not going to zing crowds with punchlines at a bump stock clip, his story game has to be gem cutter tight. Several years ago, Bargazzi was at McDonald's with two friends, and one of them played a prank on the other that got out of hand. It's a really funny story. When he told it, however, he could feel audiences getting bogged down. One night, he took a chance and assumed the title role. Bragazzi realized that telling the story vicariously robbed his fans of what they pay to see, his signature bemusement in a world that never adds up. It went from a story I told randomly on stage to the closer from my special.
0: The fun thing, though, about being a comedian, I like hanging out with my friends. I got a buddy of mine, his name's uh, Luis Gomez, and me and Luis went to McDonald's D recently, and we both go, we ordered our food, and then we take our food and we sit down at our table. And then Louis went to the bathroom, so he left me alone with his food. So I was like, I'm going to play a prank on him, you know? So I grabbed his hamburger, I unwrapped it, I took a bite out of it, and I wrapped it back up, I put it back down on his tray. So that's my big prank. <laughs> like when he comes back and opens his burger, i was just like, dude, did they eat your burger before they gave it to you? That's crazy, right? Is that crazy? <laughs> it's a ridiculous prank. It's dumb. It's harmless. It should never leave the table. What should happen is Lewis should just come back, he should open his burger, and his first reaction should be to look at his best friend he's sitting with, who, by the way, also dabbles in comedy, (laughs) and just be like, hey, I just wanted to run this by you uh, before I unexpectedly go freak out (laughs) on this entire McDonald's. That's what I thought would go down, just a quick, hey, I wanted to see if you touched my food. The only time it was out of my sight before I try to fight a group of people that are going to be pretty confused on why they're fighting. But instead, that was the day I learned I'm friends with a lunatic (laughs) and a guy comfortable fighting McDonald's employees because he opened his burger and he could not have ignored me quicker. Like, didn't even kind of look, like, looked at him so, he looked like he expected them to do it, like it's happened before. (laughs) And he's like, again, again with this? He just starts, he starts screaming at all. He's like, someone ate my burger? How about i fight all of you to I find out who ate my burger? So he gets up, he starts walking towards him. So now I gotta jump in. I can't believe it's working. Like we have gotten so much farther than I thought we could ever get. I grabbed him, I was like, "Louis, I ate your burger. I ate it, dude, You gotta. that's insane that you didn't look at me. That's insane. So I get him to sit down, but it's already weird. Like everybody's like looking at us. It takes like 10 minutes for people to quit filming us with their phones. And that's when it hits me, I started thinking about it. I was like, I was like, you're gonna get killed one day. I was like, you were about to go fight it. I was like, let's, look, let's pretend that I'm not here. Let's pretend that someone did eat your burger that worked at this McDonald's. Let's pretend that really happened. You were gonna go blindly fight that guy. Not even try to like size him up, like see what he looks like at least. Do you really think you could beat up a guy that is apparently pretty confident in himself that he's making burgers, he's then eating them. just sending them out to whoever. You don't think that guy's probably the greatest fighter of all time? I honestly think you'd walk to that McDonald's counter and be like, hey, who ate my burger? And all the McDonald's employees would just part ways because they know exactly who you're talking about. And in the very back of McDonald's, you see a guy standing there cracking his neck. He's got his fist in the fryer. doesn't even know it. Just sitting there warming his hands. All right, guys, thank you all so much. Thank you, thank you.
1: No pity parties. In 2014, Giannis Pappas sent a text to his ex-girlfriend informing her that the plane he was on was going down. Only it wasn't. Pathetic, he confides with a laugh. I was scared of the truth that we were really through, but I had to know. So, yeah, I went there. It's the kind of romantically deranged act that, that is at once cringe-making and all too relatable for most members of the human species. In a raw, semi-present state, Pappas began sharing his breakup story with audiences. My girlfriend needs space, Pappas would say sibilantly, playing the part of his ex. And this is what space means, guys. It means I need you to help me break up with you. Funny, right? Comedy crowds didn't think so either. It was so raw when I first told it, Pappas recalls. The emotions were spilling out on stage. I realized I was making it too personal. People weren't laughing because they felt bad for me. So, Pappas changed girlfriend to girlfriends, plural. Plural. And it started to
0: pop. Girls, you got it easier, man. You got your girlfriends to help you through. We don't have anybody, dude. You got to be a man at all times. You know what I mean? You can't show any vulnerability to your boys. You just got to swallow that pain meatball all to yourself. Can't talk to anyone. You'll try to talk to strangers, though. You You ever find yourself in a bar just veering stranger conversation into breakup advice? You're like, man, the Knicks, dude, they can't hit the shot they are missing everything have you ever missed anybody do you know what that's like to miss people <laughs> can you just tell me what this text means other
1: heartbreak survivors aka every person on earth could now find themselves in the joke untethered from the joke's traumatic baggage papas regained the critical altitude necessary to smart bomb his premise with a rush of new observations tags bloomed and the breakup bit started growing into a chunk, a joke bundle built around a theme akin to how sequences assemble around scenes in movies. Around this time, Pappas submitted a tape to Comedy Central. Career milestones for stand up comics go something like this First laugh from an audience, first laugh from a paying audience, first laugh from a semi sober before 2 a.m. paying audience. First time someone pays you to make an audience laugh. First time an audience pays to laugh at you personally. First time a late-night talk show pays you for five minutes of ad revenue-generating laughter. And finally, first Comedy Central special. He got the special. The bit killed. It is the last time he ever told it. It did its job, he says. It's true because it's funny. Like the modernists who painted with cadmium to render life in its most vibrant hues, comics work with a raw material that is every bit as volatile in its own way, the unvarnished truth. Truth is a male polar bear chasing down a baby polar bear and eating it if no food is around, Papa says. Comics have no problem facing that. As brutal as this sounds, people are clamoring for more dead baby polar bears because comedy has never been in greater demand. There's been such an evisceration of truth that people look to comedians to tell it like it is, says Minaj. If you turn on the news, CNN is crazier than watching a Japanese game show. How do you out-crazy Alex Jones? You think real Satanists go and just sit there and have sex with some hot chick on a black hole? The media, the government, they're the new clowns, and we have to be the ones saying, isn't this nuts? Aren't these people being insane? It's that extreme level of honesty that Bargatze admires most about the members of his profession. Comedians are like the most honest people I know. I mean... We are what you think, but don't say. Minaj came to this realization early in his career thanks to a memorable conversation. At the time, he was still telling dating and Facebook jokes, just trying to be light. There was a former booker for Letterman doing showcases in San Francisco, he says. And he said this thing to me. Stand-up comedy should be If you had five minutes to share something with the world, what would it be? The more I do comedy, that really means a lot to me. You have this time on stage. Everybody is listening. What do you have to say? It could be fart jokes or political stuff, but it has to mean something to you. Dying is easy. Comedy is hard. Comics have a word for cheaply made comedy hacky. It's the easy, the trendy, the the out-of-the-box. To a serious comic, it's cheating. If you think of a woodworker's hands, you'll understand why comics, who spend years honing their craft, call the stand-up life a grind. The love and obsession with writing, performing, connecting with people, it's pure, says Butoh. But you give so much of yourself that sometimes there's not much left by the time you get home. Whenever that time comes, it should be pointed out that interviewing comedians for an article like this one means calling them at an hour that most civilians, what comics call normal people, might only dial the cops or an ambulance. So, the question must be asked, is it worth all the calluses on a comedian's soul to care so deeply about a joke, especially when they see less committed peers hacking it all the way to the bank? Sometimes it takes a while to break down horrible, ignorant subjects and make them funny, Buto says, reflecting on her in-law's blackface tradition. Six years. Six years it took me to hone that joke. It was so worth it, though, when it finally reached an audience. So, so worth it. And so
0: I did some fucking Wikipediaing because that's how Americans learn shit, and it turns out... That Santa had a motherfucking
1: What? A To see for yourself, click on the video of Butoh performing the whole joke at craftsmanship.net. The Art of the Joke was written by David Monroe, a writer and filmmaker. With his wife and fellow filmmaker, Chandra Castleton, Monroe produced Stand
0: Up Planet, a semi-scripted documentary about a new generation of global comedians, sparking change through humor. His debut feature film, Full Grown Men, won the Sundance Channel Audience Award. The story
1: was read by Todd Oppenheimer, founding editor and publisher of Craftsmanship Quarterly and the executive director of the Craftsmanship Initiative.